Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. And today we're going to talk about deposing the corporation, focusing on the corporate representative deposition rules in a federal court and, in our case, Missouri state court. John, you've done a lot of these. Uh, very powerful tool, right? Yeah. You know, I think this is one of the most powerful discovery tools that we have. I represent primarily individuals, sometimes, you know, small businesses, but the cases that we have, product liability cases, medical malpractice, most of the information that we need in our case to present and prove the case are all in the hands of the defendant. It's interesting to compare this to the interrogatory rules where there's a back and forth of information. But what makes this rule, the corporate rep rule, exciting is like hitting the turbo button on interrogatories. So it's the same sorts of information in many cases. You can ask a question and if they object, then you can push. But by being there in person, it just runs so much faster and you can get to it. And sometimes that back and forth just pushes it on through as opposed to the uh, notoriously sluggish interrogatories where you send them out, you get objections 30 to 60 days later, a uh, good faith conference, back and forth, trying to file a motion to compel. It takes forever. It can be really frustrating, although sometimes helpful. But this rule is live time, rapid fire, and it really gets things done. For those of our listeners who maybe haven't taken a corporate deposition yet, I'll tell you the reason that this rule is so powerful, it allows you to literally write out the subject matter that you want information on. And the, the recipient, the corporation who it's directed to under the rule is required to present one or more persons at that deposition, and, and they need to provide, with respect to each of the topics, anything, not just that they know, but anything the company knows. And I think the language of the rule is matters known or reasonably available to the organization. So think of how powerful that is. You want to know about testing in a, in a product liability case. And you put in the subject matter, we want to know about this particular product, whatever it is, a vehicle, a lawnmower, and we'd like to know all the testing that was done on it. Well, the company, in response, needs to produce someone or, or, or two or three people to literally provide you with any and all information that the company knows or has available to it about the subject. So nobody can show up at the deposition or someone can't show up at the deposition and say, well you know, this is all I know, or I don't know this, or somebody else knows this, or I'm not the person most knowledgeable about that. The rule literally compels the deponent, the corporation, to produce someone to provide any and all information that is available to them. They can't just simply rely on personal knowledge. And, and what this does, in my view, is this levels the playing field. Imagine if this rule didn't exist. You have a product liability case if you had to find out who in the company knows about it, think about it. I mean, it's just virtually impossible. You wouldn't know who to start with. You wouldn't know who to depose. You could maybe go online and get a you know, directory of the company and start asking questions. But this eliminates all of that. It really streamlines the discovery. And it is just such a powerful, powerful discovery tool. The history of this rule is that it started out being somewhat of a maybe a sleeper rule. It, it was not seen by corporations as a bad thing. It was actually welcomed by 
a lot of corporate interests as a way to get things done. And then it has increasingly be seen as the main tool for plaintiffs looking at some organization, trying to figure out who knows what. And it's almost, as you say, it's almost impossible. You only have, you know, X number of depositions pursuant to a court order, a scheduling order. So who do you depose? If someone shows up and sits in that witness seat and to your question says, I don't know, that's a huge red flag that they haven't prepared right. And you need to get a response to that, to that person because they may have been just showing up and thinking they could testify on their personal knowledge. And that's not at all what this rule is about. No. And the other thing too, that's very helpful with, with this rule is you can take a limited 30B6 or corporate rep deposition to certain subject matter. For instance, early on in a case, a lot of times something may come up, for instance, jurisdiction. Is there jurisdiction over the defendant? What are their contacts with the state? And what I've done in cases is we'll direct a corporate rep notice, you know, by agreement with the other side to a specific narrow issue just to, to answer or address that issue. It could be jurisdiction. It could be insurance coverage. It could be agency issues. It could be ownership. If it's a piece of property, maybe taking a deposition as to who all the owners are, who owned it at what time. So there are a lot of ways to kind of get right to it. And if you have situations where you really don't know who the proper entity is, you may have multiple different companies that have ownership in each other, LLCs, S corporations, whatever. And what this will do is allow you to sort things out in the beginning by making it very narrowly focused to a particular issue. It may be that you should talk to your opposing counsel to make sure they understand and we're all in agreement that this is not the whole thing because you get one deposition, but you have as many topics as you want. I think it makes a lot of sense to uh, make sure that if you're going to take one bite at the apple, a small bite with reserving your right to take the brunt of the case later, that it would be done with a discussion ahead of time. What we work with here in Missouri, where there's a federal rule and that's rule 30B6. And there's a Missouri rule, which is 57... 03B4. And both of the rules, they say that you need to direct a notice or a subpoena to the organization, the corporation, whether it's a partnership, corporation, association, and this is the Missouri rule. A party may in the notice and in a subpoena name as the deponent a public or private corporation or a partnership or association or governmental agency and describe with reasonable particularity the matters upon which the examination is requested. So in other words, if it's a party in the lawsuit, obviously you don't need a subpoena. If it's party not in the lawsuit, you need a subpoena. And it talks about describing the subject matter with reasonable particularity. And then if you do that, the deponent, the corporation, must designate someone to speak on behalf of the corporation on the issues that you've set forth. They may pick different people to testify to different topics, and I, I see that most often. Usually it isn't one person coming in and, and testifying about all the topics. And the other thing the rule mentions, I think it's both the federal rule and the Missouri rule, it doesn't preclude other depositions. So in other words, if you take a corporate rep notice or a corporate rep depot in a case, it doesn't preclude you from taking other depots in, on an individual basis. As a matter of fact, I have even had cases where I have deposed the same person once as the representative of the company, once in a corporate rep depot, and then also a personal deposition. That doesn't happen too often, but sometimes that would, would happen. There's another provision of that rule where it could be somebody associated with the company right now, someone still employed, an officer, a director. But the rule also provides for other persons who consent to testify. 
So it doesn't have to be somebody who's employed by or associated with the company right now. I have a short story I can tell you about that. It was a case involving asbestos floor coverings throughout a, the Catholic Church in St. Louis, and I was defending on that case. And I remember a corporation that was a defendant was asked to provide someone who knew something about the, the manufacture of these floor tiles that were manufactured like 50 or 60 years before the lawsuit was filed. And nobody at the company knows anything. They located a fellow who was about 80 years old who actually does know something. They presented him as a corporate rep. But that was an unusual case where you could actually find a person with memory if there were no such person. But deep in the bowels of the corporation, there were somebody with some means to look at records and educate themselves on what was going on 50 or 60 years ago. They would present that person, someone who has no personal knowledge, they would educate that person as to the positions of the corporation, and that person could sit in that deposition for the corporation testifying about topics that before they were prepared for the deposition, they may have known nothing or very little about. Now, a lot of people don't understand that when they're first getting into uh, lawyering, that this is that powerful of a rule that it can be somebody associated with the corporation, somebody else who's educated to sit for that deposition, and then they can testify, even though it's not personal knowledge, which is uh, very much not what you normally do in a deposition. You know, Eric, I've had cases where the person designated to, to speak on behalf of the company, the corporate rep, it was an outside lawyer. It was an attorney who had represented the, you know, the company in cases in the past. So you're right. It doesn't have to be somebody within the company. The real issue to keep in mind is, if you prepare the notice and you take a, a deposition of the company asking about a particular topic and at the deposition, that witness on behalf of the company says, we, we don't have any information about that. You can rely on that. That mean, I confirm that in the deposition. That means on this particular topic, on this particular issue, we're not going to hear one word from the defendant, from the, the corporate defendant in this case about that issue, because now is the opportunity. If you have some information, any information about this we're entitled to find out. And if there is none, that's another reason to take the deposition, you know, cross it off the list. You don't have any information about testing. You don't have any information about other similar incidents or whatever it is. We have to be careful about the word you when you ask these questions. If you say, what do you know about this? Well, are you talking to that person as an individual? Because they can, in many cases, answer questions outside the topics set forth in the corporate rep deposition. Or they might be testifying you as the corporation will you do you the corporation have information on this topic i want to make sure you know regularly go back in and say when you say you don't know you're speaking for the corporation right you're sitting here as a corporate representative discussing this topic and you're saying that the corporation does not have information on that topic eric one tip that will help with that i will ask this series of questions pretty much in every corporate rep deposition I will ask them to acknowledge, you know, you're here on behalf of the corporation. Is that correct? You're answering questions on behalf of the defendant. You're here to provide all information known to the company about these issues. Did you read the notice carefully? Are you prepared to do that? I'll ask them, are you prepared to do that? Are you the correct person? I'll say, look, here's the notice. Do you understand that your job here is to provide any and all information known by the company on these topics. Is that something you studied? Did, you know, you want to know what did you look at? Did you talk to people? Did you look at documents? Are there other things you could have done to, to help you prepare for this? I'll confirm with them that are you the person that can address these things? 
I establish on the record whether or not they've actually been prepared to do what, what they're required to do under the rule. I'll say, look, if you're not the correct person, who is? Who is at the company most knowledgeable about this? Did you talk to that person? Because sometimes what you'll see is you'll come to the deposition and for wh- whether the other side uh, you know, is lazy or, or something worse, they'll show up, as you said, and you know, I don't know. I don't know. You know, uh, Jim Bob in, in, in marketing knows that, or I don't know this. And so at the very get-go, I establish why you're here, what capacity you're here, you're answering on behalf of the company, your answers are binding on the company, and you are here to provide any and all information known and available to the company on these issues. Are you the right person? About half of the time, you'll find out that that person probably isn't the perfect person for the issue. The other thing I'll point out too, when you were, when you're talking earlier, Eric, are you aware of any testing? Are you aware of any you know other incidents? I remind them in the very beginning or confirm and remind them through the deposition that their answers are the company's answers. They are answering on behalf of the company. And I also remind them that their answers are binding. There's case law, I believe, in Missouri where if you take a corporate rep deposition and there are certain admissions made during that deposition, they're stuck with it. They can't come to trial and take a contrary position or offer evidence contrary to that position. They've essentially admitted it. Yeah, I've got one case, Ashford Condominium Incorporated versus Horner. And the uh, statement by the court is that the statements made by a corporate representative deposition are admissible against and binding on the corporate party. So it's very powerful. And even though I use that litany of questions at the beginning to make sure they understood they're here as a corporate representative, it's possible that they might have lapsed over. And I don't want them at trial saying, oh, on that question, I thought you meant me. So sometimes I will go back if it's an especially good answer. And I just want to make sure on the record that you're, you're speaking for the corporation here. No question. I think that's a good thing to do to, to lay it out in the beginning of the deposition so the witness has a clear understanding of their, their role. And also, as you said, on, on key issues, you want to confirm. It's not just you telling me that, but what you're telling me is nobody back at the company knows anything more than that than you do. So, Eric, let's talk about now preparing the notice. And I think a lot of people think, you know, we're used to deposition notices that are one page or a couple pages. And we, we spend a tremendous amount of time here at the office preparing notices for a corporate rep deposition. It's essentially all the discovery. I mean, it's all the discovery issues that, the, that you've sent out through interrogatories, requests for production, requests for admissions. And this is just really in, in testimony form. Typically, our deposition notice, I've had some of them that are 20, 30 pages long, 80, 90 paragraphs. They always ask for documents. Every time we identify a subject matter for testimony, we also ask for the witness or the company to identify any documents related or associated to that topic. The topics that we include could be designs. If it's a product case, when was it designed? How? Who was involved? What documents were created? Was there a prototype? Then getting into the manufacturing process, the testing process. How was it tested? Who tested it? I'll ask things like warnings, marketing, other similar incidents. Who at the company was involved in that? When did they do it? How was it documented? What are those documents called? Who keeps them? Who keeps the documents? How are they kept? Who's the custodian? One of the things, too, that's very, very helpful in a corporate rep depot is to help you with discovery disputes down the road. Confirm in the corporate rep depot what documents exist generally, 
how they're kept and how easily they're accessible. Or, you know, you can access them because three or four months later or two months later where you're in front of a judge and you're arguing, Your Honor, we've identified these documents. They've told us they exist. We, we want to request them. I've never had a request for production that doesn't say overly broad, burdensome. They don't know where they're at or they've been boxes in somebody's basement at home. Before you go up and argue that, if you've already established with the corporate rep that, hey, these documents are there, we don't keep them in boxes. They're on a computer system. You can actually type in what you want. I've done that before, for instance, in cases where we were looking for other similar incidents. And you always get, well, we don't know, and we don't know who keeps them and all this kind of stuff. And I had already established in an earlier corporate rep deposition how they were kept, who kept them, and that they were searchable. In other words, you could go online and, and type in the years or the dates and any, any complaints or adverse events or whatever they called them would pop up and it would provide a, a short report on the information about each incident. We're in court and the first thing we hear is this is overly broad and it's burdensome and Mr. Simon's asking for 20 years of prior incidents and the response is, Your Honor, all they need to do is, is type in the dates and push a button. We already have that under oath on the record that they can access these things and are very easy to access. So that's one of the things you really want to cover in, in the deposition is not only what documents were created, what documents exist, how long they're kept. I ask for the actual policy, the document retention policy, all companies have them. Those are all things to cover in the corporate rep notice. Preparing the corporate rep notice is essentially listing out all of your written discovery in the case, but you're doing it in a format where a witness is going to testify about it. And you're going to get a whole lot more information. John, you're sounding like a kid in a candy store right now, because this is a very powerful tool. Maybe we should put on our defendant cap just for a moment and to imagine the other side of this, because for all the power that this rule gives an inquiring, a person inquiring into a corporation, this puts an immense burden on a defense attorney because they need to scour an entire corporation, perhaps, to make sure they don't show up with gaps in their testimony, make sure they get it accurate. I did a little research last night. I found an article in a magazine called ABA Verdict, and it said, A Practical Guide to a Successful Defense of a Corporate Rep Deposition. The advice they give is to carefully review that notice, make sure it's proper, make sure it identifies topics for the deposition with reasonable particularity. But the main thing they focus on is the witness and preparing the witness. They give a suggestion, make sure you only designate one witness so that the plaintiff can't say, well, you got two witnesses or more, so you now get multiple days of deposition. <laughs> make sure that you don't consider just titles and resumes of the witness because that's not what you're after. You're after someone who's experienced testifying, not easily intimidated, not likely to veer off course because those people are dangerous because they blurt out what sounds like a personal opinion and it binds the corporation. So uh, the, the last thing I'll mention on the, from this article, they say there is no such thing as over-preparing that witness for these depositions. And then you as an attorney are supposed to try to motivate through whatever means you have, motivate the people in that big organization to really take this seriously and to prepare this deposition to give real information that will be binding. And when they come up, as we've already mentioned, if they come in and say, I don't know, you know, someone like John Simon will just circle that thing and put a pen in it and say, that means the corporation doesn't know. That means you will have to shut up on that issue for the rest of the case. So this is a big uh, obligation 
a big burden for a defense firm that's preparing a big organization. The corporate rep deposition is the single most significant event in any case that I have that really makes the case for us. It, it really is. It's the most important tool. It's the thing that most often advances the case. Let me put it that way. Because if you do it right and you prepare, you get admissions. And you, why do you get admissions? Because it's the truth. You know, they have to admit it. They admit it. It's a burden and you should prepare for it. But the one advantage that my defense attorney friends have is they actually get to choose the witness. They get to choose the face of their client, the face of the corporation. And what I'll tell you is that, that I see about half of the time that's really not taken advantage of. Here's, here's the advice I would give to my defense attorney friends. You know, obviously prepare. You have the witness very prepared. Look at all the information, understand the issues in the case. But the other thing is pick somebody who's honest and straightforward and sincere and credible. And boy, that's the best thing I think you can do for your case. I've done defense work for four or five years. And it's the same with whether you're representing the plaintiff or the defendant. If you have the opportunity to pick the witness who is going to be the face of your client, the representative of your client, pick somebody who's honest, straightforward, credible, and likable. You get somebody who's evasive. They don't want to answer questions. They sound like they're withholding information. And in fact, I think in some instances they are withholding information. And people see right through that. Jurors see that. Everybody sees that. You get to pick who you want is the idea. Now, the flip side of that is this, and it's following up on what you commented on about the article, Eric. What I do is after I'm done with the corporate rep depositions, say there's three or four or five people that they've produced, almost every time, invariably, we will have additional names of witnesses to follow up with. And what I do is I always randomly pick two or three or four witnesses whose names we've identified in the course of the corporate rep depot just to depose. And why do I do that? Because I don't want to put the whole case on with witnesses that my opponent chose or picked. You think if it's somebody that they pick, they're probably their best witness, probably somebody who toes the company line. And I've even done that in cases where I'll go online and look at the company's website, look at the directory. I'll randomly pick two or three people that I want to depose. And just to get a feel for who they are, because you're getting, again, to depose someone that the other side didn't pick. If I were a defense attorney on a case and the deposition of the corporate rep has already been taken, and then John Simon sends me notices a deposition for three individuals in my company, I'm going to feel like I need to prepare for three more corporate rep depositions. Because on those depositions, you don't have to give them any topics. You can go anywhere you want ask them anything that's reasonably calculated to lead to evidence. So I think that's a great idea to follow up because I don't think anybody on a big complicated case can cover everything fully. It's just an onerous task. There's probably some things that the corporate rep came marching in and didn't know, didn't do enough research. Then you'll figure that out when you call those individual witnesses later. So now here, here's the way this works. You've had the case for four or five months. It's on file. You've sent out written discovery. You've got your experts lined up. And then you spend the, the better part of a week preparing a, a comprehensive, focused corporate rep notice. You've got every conceivable issue in the case identified, and you've got subparts, and it's well done. You spend a ton of time, and you send it to the defendant. Eric, what happens next? Then you just go to the deposition, right? And everything smoothly, <laughs> smoothly happens. No, you get that, you get that uh, a series of objections. And sometimes yeah. the objections are a page long, even though the topic was one sentence. 
you have to cut through that thicket. And here we go again. This is just like interrogatories. Every case, every deposition that I send out, I get a series of objections, not answers, you know, just objections that are way twice as long as the corporate rep notice. And it's got everything in the kitchen sink. And, and obviously you need to try to work it out. What I've done is you meet and you try to work out what you can. But what I have suggested or agreed to with the other lawyer in, in cases, and it's, it's worked out okay, is, in other words, take the depot first. Just take the depot. Both sides preserve their objections and no, nobody's waiving anything. I think if you get through the deposition and then you've completed the deposition, if you can identify certain things that you need to follow up on, I think that might be an easier way to do it. But the deposition notice, no matter how well it's, it's drafted and the work that you put in, none of it matters if they're not compelled to provide you with the testimony or with the information. I'll tell you one of the things too, Eric, that always bothers me is, and it's even with written discovery, you, you draft the discovery. We're very careful about it. It's not just something that we throw out. And then you get an objection and then they provide you with information. So when I get an objection to discovery, whether it's written discovery or a corporate rep notice, I will have them withdraw the objection in writing or get it ruled on and get an order from the court. And I think anything less than that, you really can't be certain what you're getting. Agreed. I'm sure you've heard the objection that the topic is not with reasonable particularity. I pulled the case out on that because I thought this would be interesting for folks to get. Plank versus Care, K-O-E-H-R. It's a Missouri Supreme Court case from 1992. Reasonable particularity is met if these two things, the topic is relevant to the case and the matters to be covered are stated with sufficient clarity so that the deponent can discern the times, places, persons, or events to be covered in the deposition. What I've come across quite often, an opponent at the deposition, a, a defense attorney telling me that after I ask the first question about a topic, they'll say, okay, you're done. You asked about that topic. And I'm saying, no, no, the notice does not require me to write out my questions. It's a topic. I get to inquire on that topic from any number of directions. I do have to pull this out sometimes. And what they want to do, of course, is they want to restrict you as much as possible. You'll get barraged with objections, trying to keep you from freely exploring the topics. Maybe I should throw the ball back in your court. What happens when you get a, an opponent attorney who's just like peppering you and slowing the whole thing down? I know, I know you're saying, hey, let's just take the deposition and everyone preserves their, their objections. But what happens when the whole thing becomes a snail's pace and you know your seven hours are ticking? You need to be persistent and you need to have a plan going in. If the witness is refusing to provide information, for instance, I guess it depends on the particular objection or, or what the other lawyer is doing to impede you at the time. One thing that I just don't tolerate at all are speaking objections. Speaking objections to me, you know, the first time I hear it in a deposition, I will stop the deposition and I will address the issue with my opponent and, and just, just tell them flat out it's in a speaking objection. It's in, in essence coaching. And when you get a speaking objection, everybody in the room knows it's improper. The other lawyer, the person who did the speaking objection knows it's improper. And what I do is immediately say, hey, look, that's wrong. That's off limits. You know it. I know it. Please, from a professional standpoint, I would ask you not to do it again. And nine times out of 10, that works. If it doesn't work and it happens again, I will merely tell them if it happens one more time, 
we're stopping the deposition because I'm not about to waste my time trying to get a deposition of a witness when you're coaching the witness. And now that, that's what I do. I really don't have that much trouble with it. I think the first time I bring it up, like I said, nine times out of 10, the, the speaking objection is we're done with those problems. We had a lawyer in the office who had a series of depositions with the same attorney. And this attorney was maybe 20, 25 years older. It was a product liability case. And the lawyer just kept going on and on with speaking objections. He responded, talked about it, argued about it, fought about it. And it was a case in federal court. And there's some great case law out there where courts have sanctioned attorneys and law firms for this conduct, for speaking objections. So what I advised the lawyer to do was to get a copy of a case. It was one case in particular where the court came down pretty hard for the attorney doing the very same thing that he was doing in, in the deposition. And I said, look, when it happens again, ask them to stop. If they don't stop, the next time it happens, put this on the record, get the case out and read on the record, read on the record. This is improper. Cite the case, cite the sanction in the case. And then after you read that in the record, again, ask them not to do it and tell them if it happens again, we're going off and we're going to bring it before the court and bring it before the judge before we finish the deposition. That worked. The lawyer got all whacked out and upset because a younger lawyer was lecturing him on the on the law, but he wasn't lecturing him. He was actually reading a finding and a conclusion in a in an Eighth Circuit case that proved sanctions against a lawyer for for obstruction by repeatedly making speaking objections. Well, we're going to take a pause here. There's a lot more to discuss on this topic of corporate representative depositions. John, we're going to be back with part two on a future episode. This is Eric Beef. And this is John Simon. See you next time. The Jury is Out is brought to you by the Simon Law Firm. Share your comments with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And tune in to the other podcasts in the Simon Law Firm library, including Heels in the Courtroom, a lively look at life and law from a female point of view. And Results Don't Lie, a legal drama podcast about the nation's first opioid overprescription medical malpractice case. Subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.